Welcome to Swearhead. I've got MC Shan, aka Shan Biglion, French man, spent some time in China, now in New York. He's had some big titles as well. Don't worry, it's not just me making fun and having games with his name. Uh, Shan was CSO of Publicis Media in China and he's now head of strategy at Zenith in, in USA. And if, uh, if you're familiar with the New York area, Shan is based out of that little clump of agencies down on Hudson Street. Isn't that right, Shan? That's exactly right. The Sachi building. Wonderful. I spent a few months there. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and also, Shan has spent well, good on three years now contributing to Eat Your Greens, a brand new book that uh, yourself and uh, Vima Snyders and were there any other key people involved with that? Oh, we had Ian Pritchard as well, who was there for quite a while. Uh, yeah. And then the other 30 contributors, 35 contributors who kind of joined uh, on the journey. It's huge. It's huge. And so that came out a, a few months ago and you guys have been having a launch events around town. So we might talk about that at the, at the end. I, I really want to get into China. You've been in America for how long now? It's been six months this time and I was here for about a year in 2010 uh, on the West Coast. And you spent five years in China. What took you to China? Why did you work there? What took me to China was the fact that I was working on international uh, marketing back in the days for movie studios mostly uh, on the digital creative side. And uh, we often talked about China as like, don't worry about it. That's kind of, you know, they're doing their thing over there. But the problem was back then um, that we could see the numbers. And, and I say we because my wife and I both work in advertising. And, and we kind of both felt like, well, it sounds like they're going to be pretty big <laughs> and we could see how China would soon become a, a pretty big market for most uh, international brands. And we, we decided once we left the U S that if we were to go somewhere, the, the best place to learn about China would be to go there. So we looked for jobs in the area, took our backpacks, went around Asia for six months and um, it did create some interesting connections. And one day someone called me and said, Hey, we have something at Zenith. Do, do you want to come over and, some digital strategy and i said yeah sure i'm in and three weeks later we were in shanghai and so that doesn't sound like an un, an unusual story but what i'm curious about is you planned a six-month trip around asia but you wanted to work in china mm-hmm. as, as opposed to traveling through asia and being open to working anywhere is that right you targeted china we basically looked at china hong kong and singapore uh, as three potential areas uh, and we had a feeling that China was probably going to be the most hectic one, but also the most interesting. And now I can definitely confirm after five years spent there that it is the most interesting one and the most hectic. Um, okay. And how did you narrow in on those three? It's, it's just because like when I, when I travel around a little bit and I do move around, uh, people, I'll often have conversations where someone's a little bit restless in their current city and they might have a specific city in mind, but often it's, that someone's interested in and like three to five cities in their back in the backs of their minds. And it just depends on the specific job, the client that they'd work on and the type of remuneration, et cetera. How did you get to China, Hong Kong and Singapore? We wanted to do Asia for starters. And we knew that um, Singapore and Hong Kong tend to be more Asia Pacific hubs. The markets themselves are not that exciting. They're very small cities. So there's not a huge amount to do in my experience. If you can want to have a, international scale but they do have a lot of international uh, offices there now, China, when, you, when you say there's not a lot to do are you talking about lifestyle or work no work work wise like you know working just on the single hong kong market to the singapore market is very narrow 
If you think Australia is small, just think about how small our Hong Kong is. So what you're saying is the local markets in those areas. Exactly. Okay. So you you have a global client. Exactly. But they have pretty big regional teams, usually out of those two cities for a variety of reasons. Some of them being financial, some of them being uh, legal because of China having limitations and so on. So China was always going to be more of a local market perspective, but these are really the key cities you want to consider if you want to move to Asia Pacific. And, and usually when you speak to someone, you know, some of them might talk about Tokyo, but unless you really speak Japanese and plan to spend the next 20 years of your life in Japan, I would not, would not necessarily recommend it as a Asia Pacific experience. Yeah. So I want, to, I want to get back to the fact that obviously Hong Kong, China and Singapore, they're not, it's not necessarily like for like, cause China's huge and Hong Kong and Singapore are city states, right? Yeah. Uh, but you did mention Japan and I know some people have worked there for a long time. And uh, how would you talk about Japan as, a, as somewhere to work for an expat? I've, I've heard that it's uh, often expats don't get invited to meetings. Is There's like a little nationalism that percolates under a lot of decisions and and at the same time, there are these huge agencies there that have recently, probably in the past five to 10 years, started to take over other agencies as well. And I mean, Japan, history, culture, an amazing, incredible and interesting place. How do people that you know characterize working there? Um, well, I had the pleasure to live in Japan for a year when I studied, actually. Um, quite a few of my friends have worked there as well. The, the, the problem with Japan is that it is both literally and figuratively a very insular country. Uh, in that it is quite isolated, it has its own ways of working, it, is, it, it kind of prides itself in its difference. So everything you're going to learn there is going to be very Japan-specific. And, and as such, as an expat, if you've not been here for a long time and understand the culture, you don't have that much to bring to the table, to be honest. Well, at least there's not much that the local uh, uh, companies will value, unless you work, of course, in a global role for a big Japanese corporation. But even then, there is often a culture shock that doesn't make it quite easy for people to come in. Uh, after that, on top of that, the fact that if you're female in Japan, it can be difficult with a hierarchy. It's still a, a quite male-dominated culture over there. Mm-hmm. So that has this additional uh, downside. But yeah, in general, I, I, I say Japan is one of the most amazing countries in the world. Uh, I absolutely adore this place. Uh, I'd be able to live there in a heartbeat, but working there is not something I would highly recommend. Um, right. Or at least from a career progression perspective, you're not going to be growing your career very fast back into Japan. Right. And just to tell you how bad it is and how isolated they are, you know, when we talk about Asia Pacific, very often companies have what they call JPAC, Japanese Asia Pacific. Um, so they separate Japan from the rest of APAC. And, and frankly, most APAC teams don't touch much on Japan because it is so divided. Right. Yeah, I've always, uh, for not always, but for a very long time, been interested in Japan. I mean, we had a lot of. Uh, Japanese migrants into Australia from memory in the 1980s and I had friends and martial arts and martial arts movies and all that kind of stuff growing up around it and it's such an interesting place and it's kind of it saddens me actually in the past year or two to see countries like Japan and then Sweden and Norway and Denmark and Germany I guess get caught up in a lot of the conservative versus progressive political debates because for those who don't know japan has very strict immigration laws and so it gets used by nationalists as an example of how to protect your culture and your people and at the same time i think sweden's had one of the highest per capita influxes of refugees and there are some challenges going on there and so it gets attacked for two reasons (laughs) by more small city conservative brains and i don't want to get caught up in all the politics but i've just been traveling and I, i pay attention to it all so Sweden gets attacked uh, for two reasons. One is uh, looking at the like, gender equality. And I know a lot of people fight the idea of whether gender is a thing, but it, it's, it is a debate. 
and the outcomes of, of countries that have gender equality and the decisions that the workforces make when there is more equality of choice. Uh, and then also when I was over there, I think at least one or two refugee, uh, what do you call them, camps, sorry, it's probably the wrong word, were getting burnt down. And so they, they, these, these incidents pop up as reasons again to not open borders and things like that. It's, it's, it's kind of strange. What, how do you, what, what do you think is the most, for Japan, how are they really understood as far as the, the kind of work that we would do while working there? As a strategist, you mean? Mm. <sighs> to be honest, I wouldn't say that I know the answer to that question. I don't think I've worked enough on that market. I think there's huge appetites. Um, and and, and uh, I have definitely seen in some of the projects I've kind of touched with Japan that there is strong potential. But it is, it is a country that is set in its ways very often and, and, and doesn't look at things in a very progressive way, I would say. Mm. Um, uh, so it's, it's, you know, even design is quite special in Japan and, 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 you know, like clutter is not necessarily a bad thing sometimes. At the same time, you see some of their design principles that have the most pure uh, 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 architectures and, and like, you know, potteries in the world, but yet when it comes to, you know, web pages and so on, it's very often cluttered and so on. So mm -hmm. it, there is an appetite for understanding people and consumers, um, but it is probably not the same level of uh, curiosity and, and inquisitiveness that you would probably see in places like the UK. Okay. So there's definitely a myth that pops up. I'll bring, I'll bring that question up. It's an awkward question. I'm going to save that one. Uh, so China, Hong Kong, Singapore, which cities in China were you looking at? And, and which cities can someone realistically look at if they're interested in, in working in China? I mean, to work in China, you look at Beijing and, and, and Shanghai for the most part. Um, they're the two main hubs. I would say that if you want uh, a more international vibe, you will be heading towards Shanghai. Beijing is definitely a bit more local. It's close to the government. Um, so it's, it's, I've, I, I know that in general, it's, it's quite hard for people who don't speak the language to make it in Beijing. And then you will sometimes have Guangzhou. There's a couple of big companies in Guangzhou. Uh, we have Procter & Gamble there, for instance, which can sometimes have some, some talents gravitating around. Shenzhen is growing because you have all the tech companies as well. But very often what you can do is live out of Hong Kong and kind of, uh, yeah, Hong Kong and kind of uh, move to Shenzhen on a mm. two or three times a week basis. Um, so that's kind of for the China, China cities. When you go to Hong Kong, it's much more open still, uh, even though it's more and more part of the uh, Chinese entities. Um, uh, but it's 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 pretty feasible to kind of to move to Hong Kong. The question is, will there be an appetite for talent there? Because Hong Kong is not a growing area when it comes to the world of advertising. I see more people leaving it than people coming to it. And then you have Singapore, which will allow you to touch a little bit of China, but from a regional perspective. And I think you have to be realistic about how much China you will learn out of Singapore. And that's not going to be a huge amount. Uh, if really what you want to get is an understanding of China, then you want to go there. You need to be in the middle of the dragon. Singapore will be interesting if you want to have more of a, an Asian experience where it allows you to kind of touch India and uh, Philippines and, and, and uh, Indonesia and so on. But mm -hmm. if you really want to get a taste of China, you've got to go to China. Right. And from Singapore to Shanghai, how long is that air flight these days? I believe it's about six hours. Okay. So that's like New York to LA, just for, for yeah. those for those who are seeing Asia as a small place, it's massive. It's pretty massive, yeah. It's about a it's an unpleasant red eye to go between Singapore and Shanghai. That's just all I can say. Okay. And there's been a there has been a stream of companies relocating, I think, global headquarters or significant parts of their 
their companies to the region. Procter & Gamble, from memory, I, I touched them very briefly in the building in which you work. And I, that was seven years ago. And I remember they were saying they were moving a lot of their main people down to uh, Singapore at the time. Yeah. I, I think that's the case. What, what, which companies have, been, have made that shift in the past five years or so? usually depends on how much of a priority they make China. I know PNG is clearly a big one. Mark Pritchard goes to China regularly and I really salute that. It's just fantastic when you have a global CMO who kind of takes to heart the importance of China and physically go there because it, it, you need to have physical presence. Uh, L'Oreal is very, very strong in China. Um, beauty is a massive business, as you know, over there. Uh, automotive brands is a bit more complicated. They very often are joint ventures because this is the way the government forces them to, to set it up, but they have huge hubs uh, in the market. Um, and then luxury brands have very strong presence, even though they still, to be, still tend to be quite uh, managed out of Europe and Paris and, 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 and London and, and, and Milan, but they do have huge teams and, and, and the weight of the Chinese market is just too massive for them to not have big teams and, and, and nowadays even a little bit of independence from a career standpoint. Okay and so going back to the decision as you were traveling around Asia I guess Shanghai, Beijing, Hong Kong and Singapore how did you make a decision and where did you end up and why? Basically the job came up in Shanghai that's where we went I think you know I would recommend everyone who wants to move there to at least go there and check it out just to see if you have a vibe for it because there are different cities um, and you know even between Hong Kong Singapore and Shanghai they're very very different from one another uh, Singapore is seen more as a family friendly place you know where you will slow down your pace where the weather is warm all year round versus Shanghai is the hectic one uh, Hong Kong is a bit of a mix um, even though it's it's probably one of the more dormant markets, I would say at the moment, uh, because the industry over there is not growing very fast. Mm. And what about for people, you know, because like, some of the, 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 generally speaking, I would say the region's quite conservative, especially at the government and business level. And Singapore, as you say, maybe it's for families, but also they do have some, uh, laws and policing of laws that will seem draconian to people, especially if they have certain uh, sexual preferences. Are there other things like policing of sexual preferences that people don't know about until they move to this region? And are they, you know, is Shanghai quite different to Hong Kong in that respect or to Singapore? To be honest, for these big cities, I wouldn't sweat it because, I mean, Singapore, even Shanghai, I mean, Shanghai, you know, let's talk about LGBTQ, for instance. It's not like you're going to be super open about it, but there are quite a few people in the office who were quite openly LGBTQ and we, like, the, there was no issue within the people there. I think you have to understand that countries like China, like China in particular, is not a country. It's more of a, it's a continent with a set of rules and and they are sometimes enforced and sometimes not so much enforced, but there's huge differences and variances between cities and tiers and so on. So Shanghai is its own little ecosystem. So I think you'll find some things, but as long as, long as you're able to deal with having your internet censored and having to use a VPN and probably not complaining too much about the government on social networks, you'll be fine. I mean, I've, I've never felt any pressure or any, any, anything that kind of doesn't allow, allow people to be themselves when I was okay. in Shanghai. Okay, all right. I know someone going through some stuff in Singapore right now, so I do think it's worth looking. It can into. happen. It can yeah. happen, but it, it, I, I'll be honest with you, it's not. I've not. I'd be more worried about being in Moscow than Singapore. Okay. Okay. And what about? Uh, it's. I know. I know we haven't brought up the Koreas or South Korea, or uh, I know there are many other countries in Asia, but South Korea is also this amazing little thing that 
just keeps on going and keeps on doing well. Uh, are there any little uh, cultural nuances that can have like really strange legal ramifications? This is a strange question. And I'm thinking of a story that I'm trying to get to, but I'm, I'm just, Yeah. What are you but, thinking about well, here, Mark? <laughs> like, so for example, I, I had a friend in, in, in the region, I'm actually going to interview him soon. It's on TV a little bit. And I don't want to mistell the story, but there was uh, an altercation in a hotel on New Year's Eve one night, and uh, this, this person was confronted by a few people and protected himself, and then had to pay twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars in blood money because he protected mm-hmm. himself against three yeah. people. Are there other little other things like that? Is, that? is that do you hear stories like that in China? There's a few. I mean, it it, it happens. I I. For me, it's kind of sensationalist as well, the way it's talked about. And, and, and I really wouldn't tell anyone to worry too much about it. There'll be things to be careful about. Like in China, for instance, you were told when you arrive, don't help people in the streets. If you see someone who's got a broken leg or got hit by a car, you don't help them because sometimes it's a scam. Or once they, 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 they see a, a, a foreigner kind of coming in, they kind of see that as their way to get some money back because the person who hit them just run away. So you can have little things like that that people will tell you. But frankly speaking this is not what i would make as a big consideration for whether you should move it on yeah yeah yeah. no i i agree i agree it's just i just i actually know a handful of people in the region who've had some pretty challenging times and when you're talking to each other on the, online in the middle of the night and they're panicking about it it's not sensational it's like it's not actually pleasant. it's life critical you know because sometimes you someone's got your passport for example um <laughs> well yeah. okay so you went to shanghai did you what were you working on did you ever touch local brands uh, yes, I, I, I did work a little bit with local brands. There's definitely an appetite for local brands to be a bit more strategic. Uh, that's new. And uh, I have to say, when I moved to China, uh, it was 2013. I, when I arrived, <laughs> it was kind of funny because I arrived in the head of digital strategy position. And uh, people would kind of come to me and I said, like, why are you here? We, we don't need strategy. Like, this strategy is useless to us. And that's kind of what I had to deal with. And, and we'll talk about it because I think there's some similarities with the US on that front. But um, the, the brands have changed and have evolved a lot in the last five years. And the appetite for strategy has grown over the last five years in China and especially local brands have kind of woken up to the importance of it. There's still a long way to go, um, but there's definitely a, a, a desire for it. And, and I will tell you, I think the single reason, most important reason why this happened is because when... For a long time, China was such a growth market. You could do whatever you want. As long as you threw media dollars and distribution, you'd grow. Mm. And when I arrived there, the economy starts kind of, I mean, it's slowing down. It's not like it's decreasing or anything, but it starts slowing down. And, and, and people value strategy in times of trouble a lot more than they do in times of extreme growth, in my mm. experience. Because strategy helps you deal with the stress of having to make a choice. And, and, and when for a long time, China did not have that pressure. China just was in the, if you do it, if you push it, if you promote it, it will work. And so there is a point at which brands kind of had to face the reality that, well, the heydays are over now. So we probably should be looking a bit more carefully about the things we're not going to do, the things we're not going to invest in and, and kind of take a more pointed direction to what we do. So that's been my experience over, mm-hmm. over the first five years. And what about with the company ownership structures over there? Are there, you know, when, when, a, when the economy is growing so quickly and it's booming and then when some of the companies might own the product and the retail and the factories and all sorts of stuff, that, that probably even means there's even less need of strategy because they, 
a lot of companies might control a lot of their means of manufacturing distribution. Is that, is that common? It can happen. You have giants for sure um, in, in the Chinese market, especially because they're quite isolated. You know, the, the, the international brands don't always translate too well in the Chinese market because of the, how close the Chinese system is, especially online. Um, but I think even though there is this scale, there is increasingly this desire to make sure you don't make the wrong choice that that being said there is still this this reality that it's it's a it's a doer market like you just have and you go and you do things you make things happen you know like you don't pontificate about them for very long um thinking is quite cheap actually i think in china um it's not something that's highly valued uh, every now and then they want to kind of hear about it but ultimately it's it's a very action-oriented country mm. And so when someone, when you arrive, would say, we don't need strategy, what are they actually saying with that? It's such an easy thing to say. Different people are different things, but in general, they knew that most of their clients wanted to see a media plan on a spreadsheet uh, because I worked in media when I was there. Um, and, and, you know, they, they just like, it's great, but ultimately my, my client probably will want to see an Excel chart that shows the uh, spot plan. And they're very happy to work with this. So what is the point of having strategy there? Because often as well, they kind of know what they want. So I don't really kind of need you to do this. I, you basically, for them, get a little bit in the way. You create more troubles. Like, oh, now I'm going to have to think about consumer insights. Thank you very much. Like, I didn't have enough to do already. So I think there's an element of that where the output had, had kind of driven a little bit the process um, to the point where people didn't necessarily see the value in asking the questions. Plus, you have the reality, and I don't think this is specific to China, but strategists can often be seen as people who over-pontificate and waste people's time um, by having kind of blue sky thinking without kind of taking back down to earth. And, mm. and, um, and you know, like the, the, sometimes you can send the strategists to do something and you're going to end up with less charts than when you started because it's just, some of them just don't write. So one of the things you have to know if you go to China as a strategist is you have to be someone who ships and produces and gets things done. Like it's not just about coming in and helping people around, just like giving your opinion here and there and moving on, which can happen in, in other areas. But in China, like people respect you once they see that you actually add to the actual delivery, that you're going to be creating things that's going to help make their lives easier. Right, right. So in some respects, I mean, that, those dynamics definitely happen in many places. But in some respects, it's, it's a matter of show me where the money's going, show me what kind of deals I'm getting, don't make me think too much. And then what about personal benefits? I do, I used to tease in a kind of more vicious way, but friends who were pretty senior in media agencies, like what kind of personal benefits could, were people getting if they were spending a lot of money for their brands? Is that also a thing to think about or was that off the table or just what unspoken? Well, you know, like you get tickets to the tennis or something because you spend a lot of money with those days are long gone in media. <laughs> get out of town. <laughs> no, it's just, I, I, I don't think I have received a single invitation in, in five years for anything. No. Mm -hmm. So, but it's fine. I mean, it's, I was trained in my career is to not take anything that was kind of given to me for free by my bosses at the time because they had strict mm -hmm. guidelines. So yeah, I, I, I've not seen it. There's definitely some dark things happening in the world of media um, that I think have more to do with uh, money going in the wrong places and the wrong pockets. Um, mm -hmm. That happens. Some people have gone to jail. Um, and it's not specific to agencies. It's just the world of media in general. Some categories are notoriously worse than, other, than others. Um, if you work in an auto, there's more chances you'll be exposed to, uh, to it than if you work in beauty, for example. Mm. Um, but it... it 
there, there can be things happening, but as far as I'm concerned, it's it's uh, it's it's changing quite fast. And and the, the governor has a pretty strong anti-bribery uh, policy at the moment, which has definitely helped clean things as well. Okay. So then how did you make inroads as a head of strategy? How did you get people to think about strategy? Did you, did you need to choose brands that were going through some kind of small crisis to get a foot in the door? You need to have a boss you're going to trust to help you do this. Um, so, you know, choosing your boss is, is as important as choosing your clients or your, or your title when you move to a country like China. And it's the same in the US, uh, in my experience. Like people who are already going to help you navigate some of the, the hurdles you can use as a strategist in a marketplace, honestly, the, the, core, uh, uh, the core practice. Um, after that, it's, you know, it's kind of down to, you're going to have to get tactical as a strategist. I know it's kind of a weird thing to say, but you have to be able to kind of link things back to tactics and help them think quite actively about how what you're thinking is going to help them on a tactical level. Because it's not, it's not like a, a, a relay game. It's not like you come in, you write a strategy or you brief and you pass it on and someone's going to come up with something. You will need to help people coming up with a solution as well. Mm-hmm. And that's something that is both frustrating because it requires more time. It's also quite satisfying because it gets closer to the delivery itself, which I do think is sometimes important to hone your strategic skills as well to kind of understand how things will connect in the in the day-to-day and, and the actual delivery that's critical um, that's so cool. for me you know you know for me i would say what what helps uh not to say what's perfect but what helped me survive was the fact that i was quickly labeled as someone actually helps projects and will write things i will get my hands dirty and i will write ideas if i if, if the team needs me to, and I, I will help guide them and so on. I will mm-hmm. just give them all the resistance. Oh, no, you should think about this and not about that. How many strategists did you have at the time? This is a publicist Pub- media China. How many? Yeah, so at the end, it was about 16 people. Uh, 16 people because I was supervising the, the four agencies. We had four media agencies uh, uh, in China. So there's a, there's a couple of heads of strategy there. There is uh, a, a few strategy directors and, and company directors. There's about 16 people. Okay. And, and the way we had done it is because strategy is actually not that easy to find in China. It's not, a, it's not a, actually a skill set that's kind of found very easily. It's actually hard to find good strategies in the Chinese market. Hmm. Um, so we decided to cent- centralize things a little bit so we could serve across different agency brands rather than having silos where we might just have in the end one or two people who can actually do a, a good job on strategy. Okay. What kind of work did you do? We did a lot, a lot of... Um, uh, uh, comms planning in terms of like coming up with uh, uh, platforms, communication ideas. Uh, we did a lot of uh, channel planning. We had to support them a lot in terms of, you know, kind of understanding how to build reach, for instance, how to use the strategic tools that we have to kind of evaluate uh, media deliveries. Um, sometimes more than we would have looked, liked because it's not necessarily the job of the strategy team, but there is a lot of training. There's a lot of uh, 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 kind of understanding how the work needs to be done. Consumer insights was, of, of course, a big part, but this is where I always try to draw the line. For me, there is research and there is strategy, and I don't want to confuse them both um, because sometimes I feel like strategists are seen as, well, you're the one who comes up with the consumer insights, whereas actually, no, we're, some, we're the people who have to kind of digest them and transform them into something that's going to be fruitful and, and, and uh, fertile for others to kind of build, to build on. So as, as you know, sometimes these phrases and terms get used interchangeably or, or loosely or even in a, in a wrong way. And I, I, from what I heard just now, I think you're, you've already answered this, but just to be really clear, as someone who's confused about or interested in having a more strategic role in a media agency, what is the difference between 
comms or communications planning and channel planning. Channel planning is really kind of understanding what is the right mix, how much do you invest in one versus the other, how do you build sufficiency of those channels? So, you know, what is the maximum volume of searches you can go and search? What is the maximum amount of reach you can buy before you start losing uh, efficiencies in the touch point? So channel planning is the art of basically prioritizing your budget and, 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 and defining the kind of investments you're gonna make and the ownership you're gonna make in a, in a channel. Uh, versus comms planning is a lot more understanding what is the organizing idea uh, that's going to be structuring the entire campaign what is going to be the key insights that are going to be lending us into a, a fertile ground which we can go and position or define what the campaign is going to be uh, saying to the consumers and in a way it's interesting because there is always a bit of a tension between channel planning and comms planning in media agencies because you you need to have that uh, uh, ability to create the channel plan based on effectiveness studies, you know, marketing mix modeling and so on. And you should be able to kind of say roughly what is the mix of TV versus radio versus social media and so on, at least looking at the effectiveness of those channels. But at the same time, what you see is that media agencies have become more and more focused on the comms planning aspect, which was not necessarily historically their area of focus because channel selection now can come very often from understanding what the idea needs to say. Uh, there is enough choice in terms of channels nowadays that you you don't have to choose from four channels and kind of balance them out. You have so many options that one of the ways of building a good media plan, uh, and I firmly believe this is kind of the way it's, it's evolving and it's going to accelerate, is to understand what you want to say and then going finding the right places to say it uh, mm -hmm. in the most eloquent and, and relevant way. So that's what comes spending spends a bit more time on. Yeah. Can I paraphrase? So, uh, so channel planning without comms planning is while you use the word art, it's probably probably much more about science and deals. Where do we need to turn up? How much money do we need to spend? How often do we need people to see us? Possibly with a little bit of the message in mind. Comms planning, from what I understand, takes that or informs it. It could happen after or before. There can be a back and forth yeah. and it's totally okay. Yeah. Comms planning is a little bit more of the art and intuition where, for example, one of the silly examples I use when I'm talking about strategy statements is about the New York Knicks, the basketball team. It's not a single-minded proposition, but it's a strategy statement that will show that the New York Knicks are the best anger management in town. Now, a comms plan would take a thought like that where the unusual part of it is anger management, and a comms planner might think about how to appear in places when people are angry or not angry or need to be angry or need to cure their anger based on some research, and I'm hoping you can remember it, uh, that shows that if you turn up in a context in a way that's very relevant to that context, then the communication is more effective. And yeah, then, sure. right. And then the arm wrestle between comms planning and channel planning is efficiency versus effectiveness or efficiency and effectiveness. Is that correct? It's a bit of both. I wouldn't necessarily categorize them as one or the other for yeah, this. Yeah. They both have a, they, have, they both have an element of effectiveness, effectiveness, efficiency, but the, the way I definitely would say there, there is, two aspects of the, 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 the strategic planning uh, uh, methods that I have personally decided to kind of embrace rather than fight is the fact that there is a, there is a, a horse and a cart and you, between comms and channel planning the same way there is a horse and a car between strategic ideas and tactical ideas. And I think it's good for the strategist to kind of do a bit of back and forth between those to kind of shape where their thinking is going. Mm. Uh, so personally, I, I'm against system that say you have to start with pure channel planning and then you move to comes planning or no, I think there is always going to be a bit of both and you need to have a 
somewhat good understanding of where you're going to go from a channel planning perspective, but you need to have the open-mindedness of what needs to change for the comms plan to really come to life in the way we want it to. Yeah. Uh, and then you're going to have to go back to come to channel planning once you've done that. Okay, fine, we've made some choices which were interesting for the comms plan. What does it cost us in terms of effectiveness or efficiencies in terms of the channel plan? And how can we fine-tune this back so that we don't lose uh, those deliveries here? So it's a, it's a bit of a back and forth, and I always... Start from your position of strength, you know, put first what you feel comfortable with, first needs the comes spying angle, then look at the other one and come back to yours and so on and so forth. And then make it a bit more iterative than just a, a linear cycle. Totally, totally. And like when I've done brand or campaign work in, a, in an advertising agency, I love to know what's, what's been working for the brand recently or competitors recently. Where might, we, where might we turn up? I love to get that because it informs the thinking, even if we were to land on something about the New York Knicks and anger management and then be quite focused in, in what to do. And it's hard to sometimes have that relationship with the media partner to give you stuff that doesn't get, get through so that doesn't have to go through the client or that doesn't have to wait for 30 days or whatever. It's like, just tell me where they, they spend time and where you might, you know, it doesn't, doesn't take that long. So back to China, what, how did you work with agencies? Were there any unusual, like other agencies? Was anything unusual about it? Was it pretty standard? Very standard. Okay. Um, I don't think there is anything positive. It's, it's, it's structured the same way. And, and let me be clear that China is one of those markets. It's, it's difficult because it's so important in the world of advertising China. I mean, for many categories, China is the number two, if not the number one market in the world nowadays. So the expectations are very high. So there is skills that are being developed, but at the same time, the skill set has not kind of caught up with it. And, and the reality is, I'd say, there's, there's a big majority of people in China who are not properly trained and very senior because this, they, they, they rise through the ranks very quickly. They jump ship and change jobs every six to 12 months. So there is a reality that, you know, I'd say a, a business director in China is probably to the level of a senior manager in the UK, for example, in, in many cases. Uh, so that's one of the tensions that you have is kind of to reconcile for the need to mostly have the skill sets around, but the expectation on the delivery is still very high up. So you do find some talented people and they will be, they will, the ways of working are very closely linked to the ways of working that you would see outside of China, just not always implemented in a way that's necessarily as diligent or as fluent. Uh, people tend to, you know, very often it's in China, one of the things I, I, I found hard to deal with was there was a culture you know, in, in school, kids are, are taught that um, you don't want to be the one standing out because the, the nail that sticks out in the, is the one that gets hammered is the saying that they have mm-hmm. there, you know, like, and this idea of kind of standing out and finding your own way and, and kind of be, being very different from the crowd is not really celebrated. So there's, it's not necessarily group thing, but it's, it's just like there is, a, there is a desire to kind of follow a certain direction set by someone and kind of follow that a little bit by the book. So it's a lot of the work that you have to do when you go to China is kind of embrace that a little bit because, well, this is also one of their strengths, but also how to kind of get them to slowly find comfort in their own explorations, I would say. And that's where the global systems and the ways of working quite will be roughly the same on paper, but in practice, you'll have to find how to find your way through it and, and find the carrots for them, not just the stick to kind of Mm-hmm. That have the desire to implement them in, in, in truly interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some talents blossom beautifully uh, uh, in the Chinese market. And, and, and there, there definitely is some appetite to kind of explore things. And I mm-hmm. think we're going to see a big, I think we're going to see a big uh, flux of Chinese people coming more towards the rest of the world. And I think everyone will be better off for it. And I think it'll bring some really interesting and different ways of thinking and, and vice versa. Can you think of any examples of work that you did or that your team did that bring to life that different kind of thinking? 
from a comms planning or a channel planning perspective? In terms of the ways of working, it's kind of interesting to try to give them a track and, and, and kind of let them go and discover on their own what they can do with it. Um, in terms of the insights, there are so many nuances about the way things work in the Chinese market. And even as I said earlier, you know, China is such a diverse country culturally that a Chinese person who lives and was raised in Shanghai probably doesn't know China as much as they think they do. <laughs> That's something you kind of realize when, once you live there. But if there is, I'm trying to think if there is a, a specific way of working, which we did where we- Or a type so, of, or, or an example project that you could talk us through. I, one of the things I loved was we tried for one of the jewelry brands to explore what, um, what a, a love and passion really meant in Chinese culture, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and we tried kind of understanding what are the nuances there and what can be expressed, what cannot be expressed. I mean, it's it's Japan is quite similar from this perspective as well. It's just like the the aspect of nuance in the in in the in the culture there is is quite different to what we have. So if if you take passion in Italian terms or even in French terms, it's got something exuberant about it. You know, it's got something where you feel like wow, it's it's shown, it's it's demonstrated to the world. Versus if you look at lots of Chinese movies and TV series and stories, you actually realize that a lot of the the passion is actually much more in restraint. It's much more in sacrifice. You know, passion is almost something that needs to be a bit hidden and needs to be uncovered and discovered by the other person for it to be felt. Because if it's too obvious, it's not really meant. It's just show off if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of things like that where you have to understand what fits and what doesn't fit. And yeah, it's I, I, very often I, I, you hear the sentence like, you know, you, you fit in to stand out. And, uh, and, and that's kind of one of the ways that, that China operates quite differently. Another thing I've definitely noticed, which for me has been completely eye-opening from the strategic perspective, is even though I had lived in Japan before, I only realized that in China, how much of logic, which is something you think is objective, is actually tied to language. And what something, what, what something, when something sounds logical to me as a French person, a Westerner, but not to a Chinese, it can be tempting sometimes to think it's because they're not smart enough that they don't understand it. But actually it's because there are ways that the mind operates which are a bit different and and the logic just doesn't build the same way. I, I wish I had a great example to give you. I just know it happened to me so many times where I just realized at some point, like, wow, this is just it's just slightly different logic. And mm. and if unless I take a perspective from there and then understand how the language operates it, I will not be able to understand why the thing is that way. And and sometimes equally I could be standing in front of an audience and explaining things and, and people look at me with weird eyes and because for them, it's just, it just did not connect. And, and it's not, a, it's not an intelligent tra- trait. It's just a cultural outcome of the way yeah. thought processes are, are shaped by language. Yeah, I, heard a Chinese, I heard a Chinese neuroscientist talk about, I think this is true, that there isn't a word for depression, I guess, in Mandarin and that there was an adjacent word, but it was very different and, I really liked the meaning of this other word. I, I don't want to get it wrong. Uh, but then also when you were talking about love and romance, et cetera, that is, that's not just in China. I think Korea and Japan sure. are quite similar a- in that. Asia, yeah. Asia has a much more restrained version of, of love than we do. Yeah, like the idea of devotion and service being the main love language, whereas yeah. someone who writes, for example, maybe their main love language is words and how <laughs> saying a word like love, when you say it, it loses its meaning. That's a bit of a, a mind game <laughs> when, yeah. you, when you're kind of growing up with a lot of romanticism on the TV and in music and, on, and in movies. Uh, what did you learn about yourself in China? What did I learn about myself in China? I learned my limits. 
Okay. So I, I learned my physical limits. People ask me some, like, you know, when you arrive in New York, like, ooh, New York, it's going to be intense. You're going to see it's hard. And, and don't get me wrong, it is intense in New York, but uh, it's not as intense as Shanghai and in China in general. Like the, the pace of things, you know, I have seen teams being briefed on project at 8 p.m. for a presentation in the morning after at 8 a.m. It happens. Mm. It's, you know, constant. People are on WeChat all the time. Um, you have clients that text you at 1 in the morning. They expect you to respond by 101. And, and, and I've seen people, like, sleepwalking to the office, basically, because just the, the, the pace of it was quite intense. So I have learned some of the limits there. I have uh, learned as well. One thing I've learned is good enough. Uh, and it's something that I used to hate. I was always a perfectionist, but I think it's for, for my own sanity. I had to at some point to understand what is good enough, when you should consider things are good enough to move on, get them where they are and just get them better the next time, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's honestly a skill I'd say is uh, I'd, I'd, I'd enjoy because I, I love the idea of doing a work that's as close to perfect as possible. But from a, from a, a person's perspective, it really helped me to kind of cope with things a bit better. And actually, it's useful for me now in the US as well. Uh, I've noticed already where I think people who can't cope with the good enough part do less and go crazy faster. Mm-hmm. Um, well, at least that's my case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I joke that there are two types of Australians that catch up with me. And in some of the chats recently, I've mentioned Australia, but I don't mean to be parochial. I just spent a long time there. It's on my mind all the time. And there, there are two types. One is the type who moves to New York or moves somewhere and they want to they have a solid career, but they actually spend a lot of their energy exploring the city or the country and, and you know, they have a little bit better understanding of what, what's important to them. And then there's a person who catches up with me, sits down and they're red in the eyes and they're just so frustrated that all the way that they'd spent 10, 15 years working in Australia does not translate here. And they have to learn that lesson too, that, yeah. that the market right now in many places around the world is good enough. It's not about amazing. It's about good enough. And that's hard because then you have to look at yourself and go, well, is doing good enough work good enough for me? And if it isn't, uh, I'll tell you what I love about it, and I, I think that's what China is great at, is that the good enough culture force, forces you to focus on what really matters as well. Like there are things you should not compromise on, but it should not be everything. And, hmm. and the, the good enough culture kind of teaches you to go to what is the needle shifting things I'm going to have to get right. And I think as a strategy, it's something I actually appreciate. Uh, I think it, it teaches you not to be completely lazy, but at least to have a laziness that forces you to think, what is the real big question we need to nail here? Because the rest, how pretty the slides look, how, how good is the verbiage on the slide, and so on, or uh, uh, how are we going to do like this little channel over there or something you don't have time to worry about. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and in, the, in, in a country where doing is basically the the rule it's not about thinking it's about doing you know mm-hmm. it's it's actually quite it's quite insightful i find and and and, and it force it forces you like strategies you know making choices and deciding what not to do and i think the good enough culture has definitely pitfalls but also it, it has something strategic about it it forces you to think more strategically about some of the decisions that you're going to make mm-hmm. and then returning to america what surprised you about working in media in new york what surprises me about media in new york uh I would probably say, I wouldn't say it surprises me because a lot of people have warned me about it, but it's a lack of curiosity. It's kind of odd to me. We had a, a talk with Mark Ritson, for instance, yesterday at LinkedIn in, in New York. And I love Mark. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with Mark Ritson. Some of the listeners probably have seen him speak before. I, don't get me wrong, there's good attendance and so on, but there's many people I spoke to and it's like, who's it? <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's as, as an industry, it's, it's a lot more focused on 
the I'd say the hierarchical business side of it than it is focused on the product and improvement of its own ways uh, type thinking. So this diversity is kind of lacking here. And, and you know, I've, I've been interviewing people. One of the questions I love to ask, just a warning, if you ever come interview with me, if you're listening, um, I always ask people, what's, what's, the, what's the last book or even article you've read that's opened up your mind a little bit on how to do your job better? And it's actually astounding how every single interview I've had, and I mean every single one of them, I haven't really had an answer to that question. Like people look and say, oh, that's interesting. Actually, I haven't read much over the last few years. Why do you think um, that is? I don't think it is seen as a uh, useful skill to have. I don't think people kind of see a, a huge value in it. Why? I don't know exactly yet. You might have more perspective on this because you've been here longer than me, but I don't know. I, I think it's people might be more worried about... I don't know. I don't want to say something stupid that's going to make me antagonize half the audience that's listening in New York. But like, oh I, God. I, you want me to do that, don't you? You think, I, I'm, going to, well, you think I'm going to take that bait, Shan? <laughs> I don't know. I, it's, it, you know, to be honest, it was a bit similar in China, but I think in China is because they didn't grow up with it. You know, you have to understand that most Chinese people you see in an agency, some of them as kids didn't have advertising. They didn't exist back then. It was very limited. Yeah, There's yeah. not a culture advertising. You know, like you and I, we grew up watching ads. I mean, I, I used to, I work in this business because I love ads. Like, I, I know it sounds weird, um, but there's great advertising being created. And I, I genuinely believe that the craft of advertising is an amazing craft. Like, the fact you can take people through an emotional roller coaster in under 60 seconds is something that very few people are able to do in the creative industry. So, mm. you know, kudos to the advertising industry for doing great, great things. Um, but in the US, people grew up with it. But for some reason, I don't think there's as much interest. Like, in the UK, is much more obsessed with it, maybe a bit to a point of no return where it's kind of become <laughs> almost a party of itself, in my opinion. But like, there's at least appetite to kind of understand it and debate it. And, and I find a lot less so. It yeah. to be because the US is much more convinced that it knows what it needs to do. Maybe there's less doubt in the US culture. That means that people feel maybe that they have to be a bit less inquisitive. Yeah. Um, Look, I've, maybe, I've, talk, I've talked to people I know who, who now run media, global media agencies. Like they're huge, huge things. And I've talked to people who've run strategy teams who've worked in various different countries. And I, and I think a few things that come out in these conversations, let me throw them at you. And when I say yeah. these things, I'm reporting them. Who, who knows if they're true or not? Maybe it'll annoy people. That I really don't know. So one thing that I hear is that New York for the global agencies is where they suck out all the money because that's where it is, right? And so yeah. whatever gets them to get the money the quickest as possible, which includes don't make me think, then that's the thing. Mm -hmm. Second is I think generally the strategy culture in all kinds of agencies struggles a little bit. Some places are going to nail it. They're going to be amazing and the clients want it. But also a lot of the clients have MBAs and internal strategy groups and internal consumer insights groups. So they often feel that they do the strategy and don't know why the agencies have strategists. I've seen that tens and tens of times. And if you work in a place that's not like that, congratulations, that's amazing. Okay. Uh, I think three is the scale and the need for, for, for efficiency and the cultural focus. And you see this in sport, the statistics, the cultural focus on efficiency, because you get that American pragmatism, which is probably a little yeah. bit, it's probably, probably quite similar to the Chinese pragmatism. It is very similar. Which is about just let's move, let's move. We don't need to overthink it, right? Now, overthinking can be a bit of a dismissive way to dismiss all thinking, but at the same time, you got to respect it as well, because obviously this is an amazingly successful country that has built itself on thinkers, but also a ton of action. Yeah. Uh, and then I don't think they've, they've charged for it necessarily. You know, I know growing up in, in Sydney, I would expect to compete with my friends at Universal McCann and the other agencies that I worked quite closely with creatively because everyone was stealing each other's work. 
I don't didn't feel that pressure at all in you know five plus years in the agencies in New York. So that there's sort of four or five, probably four reasons I think that I've I've heard from different people. You know, I I had one actually. Yeah. You mentioned that, and I think that's a difference between China and the US. They are very similar in many respects, like this go-getter type approach, like getting the money and kind of you know just getting the shit done because you don't care in two years or have moved on anyway. That's the way the Chinese think, and I I, I feel like there's a little bit of that in the US where there is this short-term delivery which is critical to survival. Yeah. But one difference is in China, a strategist is just like, yeah, whatever, you're a strategist. Versus in the US, I've noticed strategy means something like it's and something I hate, by the way. I, I, people tend to think that strategy defines you as smart. And I've seen in media agencies, you'll see a lot of people are called strategists. And, and it's not because they really are doing strategic work. It's because ultimately strategist is what means to them, like, I can think strategically, therefore I'm smart. There, there's, this, there's this thinking like people are not strategists are not str- strategic and it's actually not the way it should work. The strategy for me is a craft and, and a focus and, 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 and a consumer obsession and, a, and, and a, 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 a principles obsession that defines what the strategist, uh, why the strategy is good at what he does. But in the US, there's a desire to all be called strategists and at least in the media, that's the way it works. And I wonder if by doing that, we actually devalue the term itself. Well, it just doesn't mean anything anymore other than like of course but that's that's the game right and i I bet we can find stuff from 40 years ago about job titles in america and not just america but definitely america where job titles are often euphemisms and you know i've I've been in places where everyone people groups of people like i'm smart i want to be a strategist so they got called client strategists but they didn't really do strategy they were account managers but resented having strategy people there yeah, very often. Yeah, I've I've sensed that, and and like the thing is, when we talk about it, you can tell that people will be upset to the term strategist in their title, even though they're not necessarily focused on strategy. There's also the need to match other agency people and titles in the room. Have yeah, you, for sure. Have you seen that pressure here? Yeah, I mean, it's huge. I mean, it's it's one of the most hierarchical cultures in the world. Like titles matter hugely here. It's a huge, I think, dissonance for people to come here where because of the way America talks about itself, equality, democracy, freedom, liberty, et cetera. The business culture is actually quite hierarchical and, and, uh, and, and small C conservative as well. I, I've been here six months. And I've already had people in tears in my office because the title was not big enough. I mean, don't get me wrong. I understand the game, but... Um, was that Tom? Because you, you sit next to Tom Goodwin, so I think that was probably... <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think there's anyone who cares as little about his title as Tom Goodwin. <laughs> <laughs> He's, it's just fun to have a go at when he's not going to listen to this. Uh, <laughs> you okay, think he's so, got time to listen to this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, last couple of questions. What do you what do you hope to achieve in the next year or two in in your role in America? What's what's achievable? What's achievable? I would like, and I, I will probably fail because it's it's so big and and, and the clients are so bigger. I I'd like to at least bring a culture of curiosity and being more inquisitive and trying to be a bit more passionate about what we do. And not in a like, you know, people don't care when they come to work. They do care, but like I think it's not enough caring about why we do what we do. And I remember like when we were uh, we were having drinks a while back uh, with a group of friends you were there and you asked us, you know, why do you care? <laughs> and like, I think every marketer should be able to answer that. So uh, I'd, I'd love to be able to kind of help with that question a little bit. Why should we care and, and what is there to care about? Another thing I like to do is kind of help bring some of the British culture of effectiveness. Um, this is a big project of mine. I mean, It's Your Greens was a project I loved when we worked on it in the American tax team try to kind of work on it. I believe that our industry and, and the US is where we can find most of the advertising gurus, the guys that just cannot stand listening to like the Gary V's or the uh, Simon Sinek, for instance, which is like for me, the, the, the 
come out of my ears when I hear it. Uh, I think there's a lot of smart progress that's been made in the industry, the, the Baron Sharps, the Ritzens, the Lesbian named Cliff Field, and all the, the other people that have contributed to, to each of Greens and many others. And I think there's a current about effectiveness. And I think the U.S. will be very receptive to that. And I would love to be able to kind of bring a bit more of that here, bring more of the IPA thinking and the Aremberg bias of this world. Sure. Um, because it is, it, is a, it's, it is an outcome-driven market. It wants to see results. And there is enough progress that can be made by being smart about how we, we measure our work and how we, we have a bit, bit, bit more of a scientific approach to what we do, not to say we're a, a hardcore science, but it's having that, that diligence is something that we could do a bit more often in the US, which I think will be uh, pretty good. So I'd, I'd love to be able to help a little bit at my tiny level. Okay. And you're, you've been recruiting and you'll probably recruit more. What kind of people are you looking for? I, I, the number one thing for me is people are curious. If you're curious, you'll learn anything. I, I, they're different, depending on the level, of course, the more senior I will need a level of expertise for showing the field because I don't want to have to train you from the ground up for this. Uh, but um, curiosity is, 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 is something I quite like to find in people. I love people who have a presence. Like uh, it's, it's just, I feel like if you want to be a strategist, you need to be able to ruffle feathers. I kind of see our jobs. You know, I, 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 I talked to the teams here and, and we talked about, you know, what's the difference between a client lead and a strategist in that case, if they shouldn't be called strategist. And I always say like, you know, there's a person who should obsess with what the client wants and there's a person who should obsess with what the consumer wants. And, and the strategist in itself, in himself or herself, will, will have naturally a desire to kind of obsess with the consumer. And, and, and we need often to be the bad cops in the room so having that ability to kind of challenge people, not necessarily in an aggressive way, but having slightly assertive behavior is something I quite like in this project. Mm. All right. Well, for people who've listened this far, who are interested in working with you, Shan, I, th- I think if they use the phrase feather ruffler in their email subject to you, that you're going to open that email. So there's a little oh, Easter egg. Open that email. There's an Easter egg <laughs> for you all. Shan, other than Eat Your Greens, which came out with the APG, right, in, in London? It's the APG, yeah. yeah. The accompanying uh, group, yeah. Okay, so people can check out that book. It's been selling well, and it's got a lot of really good brains in there, it's, and it largely focuses on, did I just say focuses? Focuses on effectiveness. Uh, other than that book, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, I'm most vocal on Twitter nowadays. They'll find me on LinkedIn a little bit, but Twitter is a good place to find me, that's for sure. Um, that's where I'm the most liberated because no one else <laughs> in my industry follows me there. So I can do whatever I, I want. I'm a, I'm a bit more careful what I say on LinkedIn, but Twitter, I'm a bit more. Yes. You're very ranty. What's the, what's your Twitter hand, Twitter handle? It's Lushan, L-E-S-H-A-N-N. Excellent. Shan, thank you so much for joining me today on Sweathead. It's been a pleasure. Uh, and, I'm sure that you'd be happy to answer people's questions about working in China or in America. And I really want to repeat that when people like us get around to different places and then talk about it, we don't, we're not judging it in a mean way. I mean, we travel because we're really curious and interested, even if some of the judgments, if you are from those places sound like like negative judgments, we, we don't mean it that way. Cause I'm sure Shan, like me, you probably love most places you've been to and have beautiful friendships and wonderful experiences all over the world. Is that right? All of them, every single one of them, and I loved all those places. And I, I, and I wish, you know, I, it's, I will be as, as judgmental as of friends when I go back. So it's got nothing, you know, specific to those areas. It's just, it's. I think you have a, you want to understand where you are. That's what you do when you move a lot like this, and and you spend time trying to analyze it. And you're mostly wrong. Let's be honest. You mostly mm-hmm. end up on cliches and things. And this, you know, you ask me what I learned in China. 
I learned how little I knew of China. I stayed there five long years and I worked hard. And by the time I left, I felt like I, I knew a little bit less. And that probably made me able to say, well, I know a little bit more about it than others who think they do because the Dunning Kruger curve goes very, very quickly back to the slump in this market. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's one of, the, one of the things that keeps you turned on. Just keep wanting yeah. to, to... And if, you, know, if you have questions about China, ask me now. China moves so fast that in about six months' time, anything I knew would be gone. There'll be nothing left of my knowledge of, of the little knowledge I had of this, of this country. That's the reason you have China. I think you've got at least a year. Okay. All right, all right, MC Shan. Thanks, thanks for joining me on Sweathead today, man. We'll talk soon. Bye bye. Peace.